I mean, when you talk about solutions, I think one of the things that is a necessary condition of any forward progress on this issue is to establish trust between people who hold opposing points of view. Welcome to Ununinformed. I'm Sean Seavey. Ununinformed helps you in being connected to the world around you so you don't feel dumb around your smart friends. We're talking about finding solutions to America's gun problem. This is part two on our discussion about guns in America. If you haven't had the opportunity yet, go back and listen to part one where we talk about the benefits and the costs of guns. And we have a discussion about interpreting the Second Amendment. So let's jump right back into our conversation with Andrew McClurg and Brandon Denning, who wrote the book Guns and the Law. So here we go. All right, in this section of the podcast, I kind of want to focus on solutions. I know your book focuses a lot on solutions. You look at what's been done other places. I just want to start out with uh, some somebody from Facebook, Amy Jo Moore. She said, Australia hasn't had a massacre since they had tightened laws on guns in the 90s. They destroyed millions of firearms following the Port Arthur massacre. So, uh Brandon, I want you to weigh in on this, and then I'll have Andrew. So what can we learn from Australia? Yeah, so Australia basically, uh, you know, got people to, I mean, they they had to do this at the state level, too, because Australia is a a federal republic kind of like the U.S. And so each individual state in Australia passed uh, uh, basically the same law, and uh, you know, the compliance rate was uh, pretty high. Uh, I mean, you know, there's some indication that not everybody turned over their uh, the weapons that were banned, but th- there was higher level of compliance than you would probably see in the United States. A lot of students, when they're talking about solutions, proposing solutions, have to keep reminding them, well, but remember, we already have more than 300 million guns out there. Um, you know, so a new regulation on, you know, raising the age to buy an assault weapon from 18 to 21 isn't really going to do much. There's already 300 million guns out there. Um, I had to look this up in my our book while Brandon was talking. Actually, I think Brandon drafted this chapter. It said uh, estimates were that prior to the buyback, some... 3.25 million guns in Australia, where, again, we have uh, – we don't even know how many guns we have. That's part of our problem with not tracking anything in this country. But it's estimated above 310 million right now. Um, be more. We don't really know. Honestly, we have no idea. <laughs> and maybe – so there's another question that says, what do you think would be the effect if we implemented some of these other nations' laws on the U.S. And short of taking away our guns? And I think it's interesting every time – you know, a big a mass shooting happens. We, I get BBC reporters saying, "Hey, we're doing just fine in the UK, and look at Australia." Is that an argument they can use? This stockpile of 300 million guns, so all the regulations in the world aren't going to make 300 million existing guns go away. Yeah. I do believe if we were going, you know, had started serious gun regulation decades ago, where we might have had half this many guns, it would have been a lot e- easier. But so I don't. I do agree with probably what Brandon would agree with is that we can't really make direct comparisons with these countries. But I would point out interesting chapters in our book, I think, is the comparative law chapter where we examine gun laws and summarize gun laws in six uh, developed nations. And what we find is they all have um, both much stricter 
gun laws in the United States and much lower gun rates. But this also includes, and what I want to point out, is countries like Switzerland and Israel. These are two countries that the gun rights movement points to and says, look, these are examples. These are countries with high gun density, and they should have low crime, where that shows guns don't cause a crime. But even those countries have far stricter gun laws than we do. And gun laws that I do think could make a difference in, in this country, such as they all require licensing or registration of guns. You know, we require a driver's license to insure drivers and don't require license to own dangerous weapons like yeah. firearms that can, you know, cause mass casualties in just minutes. Um, so, for example, I think things like licensing, um, as an example, in Israel, if you're not a member of the Defense Force, you're limited to owning 50 rounds of ammunition in the United States. You can own a thousand guns, and some people do, and a million rounds of ammunition, and some people do. Um, so limits on things like that, um, I do think we could make progress with comprehensive gun laws, but not by nipping at the edges and saying, you know, we're going to raise the age to buy an assault rifle in Florida from 18 to 21. I do not. I agree with the uh, gun rights movement that that's not going to make any difference whatsoever. And let's talk about uh, solutions. I want to spend some time on this because this is where people really get concerned. Uh, usually something bad happens and then they make some type of ban that sounds like what just happened. For example, after Vegas, people talk about bump stocks after, um, something where somebody who was mentally ill, we talked about background checks, but yeah, let's talk about that a little bit more. Um, but first I want to talk about in, when, in the solutions chapter, you talk about some logical fallacies that people use when we're talking about the gun problem. Um, who, who wants to attack some of these logical fallacies? I'm not sure who wrote that part. But. Well, I, I would be happy to because I actually yeah. start my, started my law professor career writing about uh, logical fallacies and rhetoric. And then I actually wrote a book, I mean, an article called The Rhetoric of Gun Control, where I analyze logical fallacies on both sides of the, the gun debate. Yeah. Um, so there are many logical fallacies used and reasoning fallacies used, again, on both sides. Um, two that are used most commonly are... Um, Unreasonable demands for perfection. So I'll give you an example. So um, in America, uh, if you buy a gun from a, a licensed gun dealer, you're subject to a background check. If you buy a gun from somebody on the Internet or at a gun show or in the parking lot, uh, you're not subject to any background check. So this is the issue of what what is called universal background checks. Even my most strongest gun rights students say, that doesn't really seem logical. If we deem background checks to be important, why would we exclude some fairly large percentage from background checks? So people propose universal background checks, and one of the most common responses is, well, criminals will always violate laws. Yeah. And so to me, again, it's an unreasonable demand for perfection. We, you know, People will still murder people and still do, even though we have laws against murder. Um, they still rob people, even though we have laws against robbery. Um, extending background checks to all gun purchases, I think, would be a, a step forward. It would not be perfect. So that's one uh, of the common ones, most common ones. The most common one is probably the slippery slope argument. Well, I may be able to agree with universal background checks. Actually, uh, polls show I think it's 87% or something like that of the public does agree with universal background checks. But if I agree to that, I know your real goal is the fear 
it's a very real fear. I really believe it. This is just a step down the slippery slope. Um, that what your real goal is is to keep passing incrementally more and more gun laws, and your ultimate goal is to ban all all firearms. So we reject um, it completely. So we just value. don't do anything because we fear the slippery slope. I, I, it, it can be a reasonable argument if you can if it's a realistic fear, but I don't believe it's a reason realistic fear in America. For one thing, it's a constitutional right. It's politically unfeasible. It's practically unfeasible because, we, again, we have these 300 million guns. So these are two roadblocks we run into. Even ones that people, if you talk to them individually, gun rights supporters would say, yeah, I don't really have any problem with that. That makes sense. Um, but they would still oppose it on the slippery slope. Yeah, I mean, and I think that's a function of, I mean, when you talk about solutions, I think one of the things that is a necessary condition of any forward progress on this issue is is to establish trust between people who hold uh, opposing points of view. Yeah. Um, and I, I like to compare the gun debate to the abortion debate. Oh, my. Because, uh, well, I mean, it, and it has some parallels because uh, abortion rights supporters, uh, you know, who may, I'll, I'll, just generalize here. Uh, abortion rights supporters uh, probably more often than not would be supportive of regulations on private firearm ownership. And, and you know, when, uh, uh, you know, but, they, but and, and they'll tend to employ some of the same argument, you know, they say, oh, well, we can't, you know, uh, can't ban late-term abortions. That's just the first step to, because they don't trust the motives of the people doing the regulating. They say, well, you say you're just doing this, you know, do you regulate really this doing? practice? Yeah. What are you really doing? Yeah. And what I've discovered is that um, if you can establish uh, a personal relationship uh, with somebody on the other side of an issue, then at the very least, you're not going to agree at the end of the day, but if you trust them, um, you know, if, if there's some uh, mutual respect there, then at least you can have a conversation and find maybe points of agreement. Uh, uh, you're not going to get 100% of what you want, or, or but but you can at least have the conversation as opposed to not having the conversation. Yeah, and I, I think that's a really important part of your book, and I want to get more into that in a little bit here about how we have dialogue. Um, but... Um, we had some more questions on Facebook. Before we jump into some of the solutions your book um, outlines, there's some people ask questions about what we could do on the culture or on the uh, on the cultural level or on the family level to solve this problem. We have Dave Spackman. He says, it, it seems almost universal that totalitarian regimes do two things, high levels of gun control and suppression of religion. Shouldn't we focus more on character development, most effectively provided in religious practice, than in gun control? Could I just, because this relates back to my point a minute ago about other countries. England has virtually gun prohibition. Do you consider England to be a totalitarian regime? Uh, Japan has no guns. Do you consider Japan to be a totalitarian regime? Australia has very strict, very strict gun regulation. Do you consider those to be free countries or totalitarian regimes? I consider them all to be free countries. So <laughs> Brandon, tackle that second part because I'm not sure what the answer is. Um, you know, I, I think, I don't know about character development, uh, I think we definitely uh, have uh, severe 
deficiencies in uh, mental health care in this country. And I think that um, you see people, um, I see it in my students, I'm sure Andrew does too, I see levels of, uh, of, of distress and, um, you know, a, uh, alienation and things like that uh, at levels that I, I think are, I've not seen before, certainly not in my lifetime. And I think that there are a lot of people in crisis. And until we figure out how to identify those people and help them get treatment, I think that, uh, you know, that, that that's part of this debate that, that, uh, that sort of doesn't get touched on. I mean, these school shootings have developed a depressingly similar storyline. You know, a, a student who is either struggling uh, with mental health issues or is uh, is you know, the subject of bullying or is a bully. I mean, and then they decide, you know, it's just not enough to take their own life. They're going to take the lives of, uh, of other people as well. And I, I don't, I don't know what you do about that. Yeah. Well, it, it, I have a thought on that because you're, he's absolutely right. But there, with so many of these people, there are so many clear warning signs. I mean, several of them have been reported to police. Uh, they have been posting things on Facebook. You know, it's not like, wow, what a shock. I can't believe it was that guy, you know. Um, right. So Massachusetts just passed a law. It, it, we'll see if it's constitutional, one of the first laws that – First of all, it requires registration of all guns, uh, which require a true background check. Our background check system is a complete joke. Just that we, that's a whole separate subject, but it's a complete okay. joke. Categories don't even match up. They're not even half of them aren't even aimed at denying dangerous people weapons. Um, we should do what Brandon just said. If we should focus on who's likely to be dangerous, those are the people I think we would all agree with. We don't want to buy guns. And Massachusetts has a law. There was a guy who went in to buy a gun. He could have bought it in any other state. He had no felony conviction, but he'd had eight previous encounters with the police, um, and some of them apparently violent. Um, and Massachusetts has a law that, with due process, with a hearing, uh, allows the police um, allows to, to them to act, exercise discretion in not allowing certain people to obtain firearms. Um, now, is that an infringement of, of privacy? Is it discrimination against mental illness? Those are all legitimate issues to discuss. But I think if we want to get serious about keeping guns out of the hands of dangerous people, we need to work on identifying, and I don't think it would be that hard in some cases, who are people that are likely to be dangerous and um, would probably be a major step. In Massachusetts, I think you have to have character references to get this permit. And I asked my class, I said, do you know people who you love and you, more than anything, that you would not be a character references to buy a gun? Because I certainly know some people I would worry about suicide, not committing uh, mass shootings, but um, they're just some people who are depressed. They abuse alcohol. They're my close friends. I do not think they should have guns. I think they would be dangerous. I wouldn't be a character reference for them to buy one. So let's get into some of the solutions uh, you outlined in the book. One of the first ones that you've already mentioned, let's, let's dig in a little more on this, promoting research and data collection. Where are we at with data collection right now? Apparently it sucks. What, there's a disconnection. What, what needs to happen and what does it look like? 
we banned Congress effectively with, at the behest of gun organizations in 1996 for all practical purposes, probably not worth getting into all the details, effectively banned funding for um, firearms, uh, research into the prevention and causes of firearm deaths and injuries. That has put us decades behind uh, injury surveillance protocols that we have in place for uh, about every other type of accident. Uh, things greatly reduced, for example, um, automobile deaths. Um, because the people who sign up for my course, Guns in the Law, you put the name guns in a title of a course, and you're going to attract a lot of people who, they love guns. That's why they signed up for it. Um, the only thing everyone agreed on at the end was this one issue, is that we need unbiased, high-quality um, research. It worry, you know, if, if people are afraid of research, that makes me worry right there. If it, but I think, of course, we would all agree on unbiased, high-quality, um, you know, peer-reviewed research, not biased research. But um, we don't know hardly anything about guns um, because we don't collect data. Um, we don't do much research. Um, we don't know, for example, how do criminals get guns? Um, we know that probably about a third of them come um, are stolen. Um, maybe as many fifty percent as fifty percent come from start out as coming from federal firearms licensees. These are the kinds of things that would be helpful for us to know. So that, um, and we can only do that with with far more intensive and well-funded research. And that's what we need to pull for. Anything you want to add to that, Brandon? Well, I think that I think the, the the problem is convincing uh, everybody on both sides that the research is, uh, in fact, uh, unbiased. And and this goes to a point that I we we haven't brought up yet, but I, th I think it's worth mentioning that uh, we have a chapter in the book about culture and and gun control, like other things, is is one of those issues that people are going to it's going to be very hard to move people. Um, on uh, how they feel about the issue because it's often bound up in what amounts to their worldview. Um, and there are a number of these issues uh, that, that exist uh, that where if you view the world in a certain way, um, uh, then you're more likely than not to, to hold a certain position on, on how much regulation of, of firearms is appropriate. And it's going to be very hard to convince you uh, to modify or alter that view uh, w with evidence, which is not to say that it, it, we shouldn't try and that we can't make efforts in the margins, but it's just important to understand when you talk about trying to change people's attitudes, what you're basically asking them to do is, is change the way that they view the world. And, and for, for most people, for all of us, that's very difficult to do. It's a confirmation bias. Is that this part of that too? Uh, we want to keep our same positions immovable? It would be that. It would be, uh, you know, trying to reduce cognitive dissonance. I mean, <laughs> there are all sorts of ways. We're we're very good. Our brains are very good at uh, at picking and choosing facts to uh, to you know kind of affirm the way that we see the world or think that it works. Yeah. Well, and, about, and I agree oh, with that. Yeah. It, it, first, first of all, I don't. I'm not suggesting um, research would would change public opinion, but it would hopefully affect regulators and policymakers' decisions. Okay, let's talk about universal background checks. Where are we? Well, I'd so like to ask Brandon what he thinks. So, for example, that's a regulation that I mentioned earlier that you know, anyone who buys a gun um, is subject to this quick, instant, uh, computerized check system. 
not just people who buy them from licensed gun dealers. And, and Brandon, what do you think about that? You know, it's 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 often misdescribed as the as a gun gun show loophole, and it's it's really not because, as Andrew mentions, if you have if you a if you have a federal firearms license, you are required by law to perform background checks whether you're selling them out of your store or at a gun show or in the parking lot or whatever. So the question becomes, if I were to sell, you know, Andrew a gun, I'm not, I don't have a federal firearms license. Should I, you know, and we've known each other for years, should I have to run a background check on him before that sale is, is completed? Mm. And that's, you know, I, I I don't know. I I just, I, I guess I'm skeptical that that would, uh, achieve much, Andrew. And I would say yes, because several states do require. So, for example, in California, if Brandon was selling me his gun, we would go to a federal firearms licensee. Uh, they would charge a ten dollar fee, I believe it's ten dollars, and they would run the background check on me. It takes a matter of seconds, and we'd fill out the paperwork, um, and I would sign the required uh, form that. Is where I answer that I'm not a member of any of the prohibited classes of purchasers, and then I'd go home with my new gun. Um, and so it's something that can be done efficiently and um, at low cost. Um, but but we all agree that uh, the the system right now is quite broken, right? Or it, sometimes or... we don't have enough data. Some of the states aren't reporting the data, not giving them the funds to to collect and report the data. But the problem. If you look, there's nine categories of prohibited firearms purchasers in the United States of America um, under what 18 U.S.C. Title Title 18 U.S.C. Section 922G, and they are completely. They were drafted, most of them, in in part of the Gun Control Act of 1968. Um, they're just the most arbitrary, ridiculous classifications in the world. So people who abuse alcohol can own a gun. People who smoke marijuana can't under federal law. Um, people with misdemeanor assault convictions can buy a gun. Somebody who commits a paper financial fraud crime that's a felony cannot. Um, don't make any sense. They're not in any way geared towards solving the problem. And the main issue, one of the biggest issues that I think most of you would agree on is the mental health issue. Uh, the definition of, of who can't buy a gun for mental health uh, reasons been involuntarily committed, um, adjudicated mentally incompetent, voluntarily committed to a mental institution. And the vast majority of people suffering from mental health issues have never been involuntarily committed to a mental institution and have never been judicially declared to be mentally incompetent. So it's far, far too narrow uh, to encompass the dangerous people. Uh, people are dangerously mentally ill. And I'm thinking also of suicides, um, people suffering depression. So it's broken in two ways. We don't have the data uh, to monitor these nine categories, but the categories themselves need to be completely revised um, to more to be actually be tailored to the people who were worried might be dangerous. There's a famous law review article uh, where the title became famous because it kind of sums it up. Why can't Martha Stewart own a gun? She was convicted of a financial crime and it was a felony. So Martha Stewart but actually she was only good. not very dangerous. I think she was. I think she was only uh, convicted of lying to the FBI. Yeah, which is a felony. Um, and right. so, a firearm for the rest of her life. Not that I 
care that much about Martha Stewart, but the point is that it, it's not tied at all to whether she's likely to use a gun dangerously, which is should be our only concern. And I, I will say that too that it, it is a serious problem that you know if we discover that the reporting of um, involuntarily committed folks, you know that that data has to be reported by the states to the system. So the system's only going to be as good as the data that it, you know, that that is incorporated in it. And and I think we've uh, we've also found out that the military uh, does a, a poor job of of you know, reporting people who've been convicted of, of serious crimes and then uh, ended up, you know, maybe, you know, being uh, uh, discharged. The, de- the Texas uh, church shooter, he uh, apparently was, uh, I don't know all the details, I have to go back and look him up, but he was, while he was in the military, he was charged with and, and he, I guess punished for uh, domestic violence. Um, and it wasn't in the background check system. Yeah. So he was able to go by and assault rifle and. Now let's talk about banning large capacity magazines. Um, I'll have Andrew. I'll let you start on this one. Actually, just back up and say that Brandon and I would totally agree on this, and that even me, a pro regulation supporter, uh, would argue that gun regulations by themselves are just one small part of the problem of solving gun violence in America. It's a multifaceted problem that you know would require major addressing in major ways things like poverty and substance abuse and mental health and um, prison reform and all kinds of issues that have nothing to do with gun regulations and so um, I, I would never argue it's a panacea but things that makes today's you know shooting so dangerous is the ability to discharge a large amount of ammunition in a short period of time so the the Las Vegas shooter reportedly discharged 1,100 rounds of ammunition in like 12 minutes or a matter of minutes um, because he had uh, assault rifles with um, 100-round magazines on them. Um, And no one needs that much firepower. You can still protect yourself with a gun with small capacity magazine, which is generally arbitrarily, but generally defined as 10 rounds or, or less. So do I think it would be a good thing? Yes. Do I think it would really solve any problem? No. Got it. Uh, Brandon, well, you have... one, yeah. Just let me piggyback on something Andrew said. I, I think, you know, maybe we're, we're getting to this, uh, we're, we're sort of ending where we may have should have started, which is to say, when you talk about gun violence, you need to talk about what kind of gun violence are you talking about? And, and I, I think that that needs to be kept in mind. Are you, are you talking about the gun violence that exists in Memphis or in parts of Birmingham or in Chicago is different than, you know, mass shootings, which are different than school shootings, which is different than suicide. And, you know, there are many different types of gun violence. And a lot of times the, the regulatory responses seem aimed at these high salience, but really rare occurrences, and some of the other uh, problems uh, within cities uh, or suicide or or some other much more common uh, forms of violence get uh, overlooked. We were talking about high-capacity magazines that police officers will say that high-capacity magazines have made the streets much more dangerous because now when they go to a crime scene, they find the whole scene littered with, you know, you know dozens of bullet cartridges instead of, you know, in the old days, we had six-shot revolvers, which really limited the ability of a mass shooter, but, um, but also 
even for ordinary street violence. And uh, something I, I thought was interesting in your book, you're talking about how in a lot of these, a lot of these cases, it's when they're reloading is when the cops have an opportunity to pounce on them. Is that is that right? And I guess again, and it, it happened. It that happened in Representative Gabby Gifford's situation. I believe they were able to tackle the shooter when he he stopped to reload. Uh, you know, I guess again, I, I just there's so many of them out there. Um, I just am not sure that enacting a you know a ban is going to. I'm not. I'm just not sure what that. How far that gets us. How effective that might be. Just think back to 1994, because this also ties into something else we were talking about. It's almost impossible to believe that in 1994, a bipartisan Congress passed an assault weapon ban that also included a high-capacity magazine ban. Um, and just think, and that, that, all, that just shows that, you, can you imagine that happening today? <laughs> it's almost like it's comical to think that could happen today. But but just think if we had had a high-capacity magazine in, in play, ban in place since 1994, um, you know, for 30 years, then might it have made a difference in our present life? Maybe so. But any of these solutions are going to take time. Nothing is going to happen overnight. And, and by time, I mean probably, you know, Let's say we instituted a high-capacity magazine ban. We are seeing the benefits of it in 15 or 20 years down the road. Well, how about uh, here's another one I hadn't thought about too much that's in your book, but somebody also mentioned on on Facebook. This is uh, Matt Maservi. He says, guns seem to be very behind technologically. Why is technology not being used more to thwart gun violence? So you talk in your book about personalized gun technology. Uh, uh, this is something I'm unaware of, but I like technology as a solution. That that sounds cool. Well, th- so this is so-called smart guns. The idea is that manufacturing, designing guns that would, could only be fired by the authorized user, assuming assumption, assuming they were widespread and and reliable, um, that would prevent a you know gun accidents from children. They wouldn't be able to fire the gun. Um, adolescent suicides using their parents' guns, um, even criminal attacks with stolen guns. It, you know, again, like estimated at least one third of all crime guns were stolen. Yeah, so why okay. don't we have some? <laughs> because there are a few reasons. Um, there's no incentive. I think the technology is there. I have no doubt about it. Yeah, it's um, on our iPhones. <laughs> gun uh, owners, are, they're afraid it wouldn't be reliable that um it would fail and that's very legitimate obviously um yeah. concern um and that it would make guns too expensive um if it were required on all guns you know low-income people wouldn't be able to afford a gun to protect themselves things have changed since this was this has been and you know this has been out there for 30 years or so and um um now i do believe that technology exists you know like you said i use my fingerprints to open my phone. iPhone 10 has uh, facial recognition. I can get into my Vanguard account with voice recognition. Um, if they would be reliable enough for all those things, I think they would be reliable enough on firearms. Um, uh, one other thing that when the sort of smart gun technology began to, when people began discussing it, uh, my understanding is that police unions were against it uh, because they feared that uh, that it could in danger, you know, if you needed to fire your partner's weapon or something, that make it difficult uh, to do that. 
On the other hand, it's interesting because there are, um, I forget the numbers, but uh, um, but it's not uncommon for police officers to be shot with their own gun. They're armed by this criminal, and they're shot with their own gun, which would not be able to happen with that type of uh, technology on a gun. Um, but they do sell them in um, Europe. Um, not mandatory, but it's available, but it's not even available in the United States. Well, so kind of wrapping up solutions, what should be what should be our approach in coming to solutions, whether we're politicians or citizens? Well, the first thing I would do is is you know I, I think it's important to uh, I agree with Andrew that uh, there ought to be a concerted effort to uh, collect data, to do research, to find at least what kinds of possible regulatory approaches. Uh, at least correlate with positive outcomes in terms of reducing gun violence. I mean, you know, it would would be anti-academic of me to suggest otherwise, while at the same time understanding that that it's going to be, that we'll take a series of studies, not just one study over time to to give us some of that information. You know, and then the, the, the scientific model is that somebody says, well, I think this, you know, I had this hypothesis and collected this data and this, is the result that I got, and then somebody else ought to be able to take the same data and replicate it, and and then over time we, you know, ideally we'll know something uh, about the issue that we're studying. Um, I would say that there's an interesting sort of reaction, uh, I think, after, so after a terrorist incident, you know, people tell us, look, you shouldn't, there shouldn't be any hasty uh, legal response, you know, you, you can't, make good policy um, in the heat of, uh, you know, a certain set of emotions. And yet, when it comes to shootings, uh, you hear exactly the opposite from the same people, that something has to be done now, and it doesn't really even seem to matter what. Uh, You know, just do something. And I find that that uh, different reaction is is very interesting, you know, that that, uh, they're supposed to be making policy in the, you know, with... Uh, in the heat of the moment. And, and that's almost always uh, how you end up with fairly bad policy <laughs> yeah. uh, in either case. Um, so I, I think, you know, accumulate data, try to figure out what, what does correlate with good outcomes. Don't uh, hastily legislate and uh, be realistic about the scope of the problem and how you could uh, impact it. Be realistic about that. I do believe it needs to begin with research, as I've said, um, and collecting data. Uh, one of my students had an interesting idea because Brandon, Brandon is right that the fear is that, well, the research is biased. And no matter what, it comes, what conclusion it comes to, somebody out there is going to complain, going to claim it's biased. Right. Uh, one of my students had an interesting idea. Let's just collect data on everything, every aspect of gun sales, gun uh, shootings, gun injuries, place, everything. Make it all publicly available to everyone and leave it to researchers, anyone uh, on either side, to use it to research and to, to advance you know, knowledge. Um, but we don't even have data to begin with, so we can't really even begin to do any research. I also believe, ultimately, it's going to depend on compromise and consensus and you know, hopefully, over time, we will come back to a point where that's that's feasible in our country. But we're at a point, certainly in my lifetime, lower than our ability for reasonable people to get together and try to reach reasonable solutions. Um, 
I believe there probably are a lot of, for example, Republicans in Congress agree with a lot of uh, gun regulation measures that they would never dare voice uh, their agreement with them. In terms of specifics, two things. I would focus on how do I identify the dangerously mentally ill and then pass laws that allow us to keep guns away from them, even if just temporarily, where they would have an avenue to get them back if they could show they weren't dangerously mentally ill. And then I would focus enormous resources into, because this is another thing that I think everyone agrees on, is we don't want criminals to have guns. How are criminals getting guns? We know generally that a lot of them are stolen, like a large percentage. We know generally that a large percentage come from licensed dealers in the form of negligent or just blatantly illegal transactions. But none of that data, no crime data, trace data, first of all, doesn't occur very often, but when it does, there's a amendment that's attached every year to the appropriations bill that prevents the release of any of that data to public, to researchers, to journalists, and these are the kind of obstacles that just don't make any sense to me, and I don't see how that would infringe anyone's right. Well, one other thing to mention, I think, in terms of the resources is, is uh, uh, vigorously prosecute uh, gun crime. Uh, I mean, you know, one of the issues in Chicago is that apparently it is very, you know, the, the law doesn't take it very seriously if you're caught with an illegal weapon. And mm-hmm. so I think that uh, that, that, that could... Uh, be another part of it and, and devote resources not only at the state level, but also make it a federal priority as well to prosecute uh, uh, gun crime and put people in prison. So setting aside guns here, this is kind of how I want to wrap this up because I feel like what's going on here, this conversation is very is, is very uncommon, and I wish it was more common. So you two not only have learned how to talk about perhaps one of the most polarizing issues in America without losing your cool. But in fact, you spent hours together writing a book without killing each other. <laughs> I, I, I'm assuming that. I'm, I'm actually making that assumption. I don't even think that's that unique, quite frankly. When I, In my class, again, it's very split between people who are strong gun rights supporters and strong regulation supporters. And when you present the material in a, and you have, you know, material to read and it's they have knowledge and, and they use the reasoning and the logical abilities, yes, they disagree, but they do so very agreeably. And they make good arguments on both sides. And so I actually think it's possible on a more widespread basis. I really think now where it's a microcosm of the rest of our society that um, everybody's just listening to what they already want to hear. You know, um, uh, people are listening to Fox News or MSNBC, and you know they're just reading and affirming what they already agree with. And so it's not like the old days where there were three news channels and and um, you know the news was presented in a an unbiased, generally way, I would argue, by people like great men like Walter Cronkite, etc. Um, and I have no idea if it could ever be fixed in our whole society, uh, kind of a sickness, and, and certainly a perversion of knowledge and belief is just that the, we're all just listening to what we already want to know. I, I, I think that, uh, I, I mean, I, I think one of the things that I try to do as a teacher um, in law school is to... Um, teach my students to, you know, to really question uh, the things that they think they know, or at least be able to make arguments uh, that run counter to what they believe, uh, because they'll need that skill as an advocate, right? You're not always necessarily going to have the luxury of, of agreeing with every single thing that your 
a client wants to do. And even if you do, even if you are that kind of lawyer, you need to, in order to make their case effectively, you ever, you need to anticipate arguments and be able to come up with counter arguments. And you try to do it. I think one of the things that we try to do in law school, I mean, this is one of the complaints actually, is that we try to get students to divorce, uh, to, to develop those skills, uh, putting their emotions to one side. And so, you know, I guess in our own small way, uh, I know Andrew would probably approach class like this to take this issue and just try to, you know, encourage them to um, show them a, a kind of model for having debates over contentious issues uh, and being willing to accept evidence that runs counter to what you thought you knew about the issue. And I mean, certainly, you know, social media doesn't help. Um, I mean, it, it, it's an irony that it, we're sort of more connected than ever, but also more alienated from one another. Right. And uh, I'm not sure that uh, by writing this book that we can fix that, but at least in our own small way, I think that we can uh, we can model uh, for people a way to uh, have these discussions without uh, resorting to you know ad hominem and name calling and all the rest. Anything else you guys want to add before we wrap it up? I just wanted to say that one of the things that I'm sure kept us from uh, from killing each other is the fact that we were writing it uh, with him in Memphis and me in Birmingham. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but that's not true, Brandon. I think we once yeah. uh, did an email. I probably have the email, though. I said, if you and I could sit down and hammer out solutions to a gun issue, we could probably agree on most things. And I think you said, I think that's probably right. <laughs> yeah, you're a safe distance away. But I, I, I think it's amazing what you guys have done. Uh, I really um, recommend this book for people who want a comprehensive, if there is such a thing, look at guns, uh, guns and the law in the United States. Andrew McClurg, he's a professor for the University of Memphis, Cecil C. Humphreys School of Law, and Brandon Denning, Associate Dean and Professor of Law at the Cumberland School of Law at Sanford University. Andrew and Brandon, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Sean, and thank you, Brandon. Always a pleasure. Thank you, buddy. Thanks for listening. This has been our two-part discussion about guns in the United States. If you'd like to take a look at the book that Brandon and Andrew wrote, Guns in the Law, I've put the link for it in the show notes. So you've now been uninformed about guns. But the bigger issue here is the polarization people have when talking about these tough issues. It's not just gun rights versus gun control. We've also got Democrat versus Republican, Black versus White, Christian versus Muslim, the bigger issue here is something called tribalism. And next week, I'm speaking with Elizabeth Gamara, who spoke about this at TEDx Salt Lake City. Our brain is hardwired with an evolutionary legacy to divide the world we live in into two groups, the us and the them, where we are often kind, tolerable, understanding, empathetic to people we consider an in-group member, and we're completely the opposite to people we consider an group member, which is the them or the other. Join us next week for an ununinformed conversation about tribalism. Thanks for listening. If you're not listening to this on your podcast app, 
Go and subscribe to Ununinformed wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme music is provided by Dee Dumbo. I'm Sean Seavey, and you've been listening to Ununinformed. See you next week. Thank you.